I was mentioning to John and Nick that uh, after yesterday's sessions, I, I feel I'm more in the mood of a workshop where I want to try to build on and uh, react to some of the conversations from yesterday than simply uh, deliver a conference paper. Uh, so there'll be a certain amount of improv that's been provoked by some of the things I heard, uh, particularly Father Kevin's talk and James's talk, uh, but uh, things that came up in some of the other sessions as well. Uh, but uh, the, the handout will keep me on some track, so uh, I will work my way through there. Uh, let me just start from the title in the abstract. I gave it the title Bigger Than Life because I think it's an essential part of Aristotle's understanding of how the appreciation or enjoyment of tragedy is a cognitive enterprise that tragedy gives us an experience, and since we're humans, it's a thoughtful experience, of how big life can be, of the significance of life. The significance of life cannot be fully captured simply by moralizing about life. One of the best examples of this is simply the Greek word uh, megalopsychia, the word that we seem to have no real English version of. And it means you've got a big psyche. And psyche, in this sense, is a life force. It's not primarily the seat of, of moral character. Of course, it's that too. But it's crucial that as Aristotle, and I think as the Greeks in general, would have understood tragedy, it's an intensification of what we experience by feeling fully alive. It's one of the great ironies of human existence that we often feel most fully alive, or at least we observe someone else being most fully alive in the face of suffering. Not that we seek suffering for ourselves to feel more fully alive, although that is not an unknown human phenomenon, but that we see other people's life force at its fullest extent in no small part when we see them working through, overcoming, and indeed being overcome by their own suffering. We experience Oedipus not primarily as a moral man or an immoral man, but as a giant of a man. And that's the experience, I think, that is at the heart of tragedy. That's the experience, I believe, that Aristotle's trying to articulate with his own model of tragic experience. So, bigger than life because we ourselves are bigger than life. And so seeing ourselves through the model of a tragic exemplar, like Oedipus, like Agamemnon, like Orestes, seeing ourselves in those ways allows us to experience our own greatness, 
our own significance. If you want to put a Greek word on it, you could say, it makes us understand how we're spudaios, another untranslatable but absolutely inevitable Greek word as soon as we start to talk about the realm in which our moral powers make of us an object of aesthetic appreciation. So the tragic or the ideal hero seems to me to be primarily an exemplar for us. And our experience of tragedy is to experience our own greatness. A greatness, inevitably, that often remains merely potential, but a greatness that can be actualized. And that the trials and tribulations, the successes and the failures on the tragic stage, create for us an experience of wonder about ourselves, not just about those exemplary figures, but so to speak, we become exemplary for ourselves. So this is part of the experience I'm trying to articulate by looking at some of these passages. At the end, I'll say something about Jacques Maritain and Richard Wagner, I think two very important reflections from our own time, at least I count them as our own time. Good thing about being a philosopher is your own time keeps expanding. <laughs> uh, I'll say something at the end about the continuing relevance for us of this experience of exemplary intensification, expansion, elevation, and idealization that I find Aristotle is working over in his poetics. So, let me start with the first passage on the handout, uh, a famous one. The work of the poet is not to speak of what has happened, but of the sort of things that could happen, plausibly or necessarily. And so, poetry is a more philosophical and significant thing than history. Poetry speaks more of what is universal, history more of what is particular. What is universal is what is plausible or necessary for a certain sort of person to turn out to say or do, and poetry aims at this even though it gives proper names. Names like Achilles, for example, or Oedipus. Now, this famous passage has been the locus of much bad commentary. My commentary will be better, so I, I want to relieve you of that worry. What is the problem here? The problem, of course, in the commentary is that a lot of the commentary tends to collapse poetry into philosophy in order to explain this passage. But if what Aristotle had really meant to say is that poetry is not more philosophical, but poetry just is philosophy. I'm pretty sure that's what he would have said. He doesn't want to say that, but then what does he want to say? I think Aristotle did not arrive at a fully adequate vocabulary for saying what he meant to say. But I think he points us towards something we have to try to find a vocabulary to say. Aristotle wants an account of tragedy that shows it as a cognitive accomplishment 
or in language I'm tempted to move to, that tries to reveal the cognitive satisfaction that we have when we experience a tragedy, when we watch a tragedy and we enter into it as an imitation of human success and failure. That is a cognitive satisfaction. It is not merely an excitation, it's not merely an entertainment. There is something about it that is deeply cognitive. We say to ourselves as we leave the tragic theater, exhilarated and spent by watching once again what happens to Oedipus and what Oedipus does, we say to ourselves, I understand him. But that doesn't mean I have made Oedipus an illustration in my moral theory. Nor does it mean, as so many students are taught that it means, well, I see why I'm morally superior to Oedipus. He's hubris all the way down. Avoid hubris. That's the message. That's a stupid way to read Oedipus the king. When you leave the theater, you're exhilarated and you're spent. Oedipus is an object, as Aristotle will say, of wonder. He'll also say that about the experience of science. The aesthetic experience of Oedipus is not altogether different from the scientific experience of dissecting a worm or a flea or other of the insignificant animals, as Aristotle says. It's this articulation of wonder that seems to me at the heart of Aristotle's attempt to find a vocabulary for the cognitive satisfaction that's provided to us through the exemplary model of the tragic hero. So, how do we explain this passage? Poetry is more philosophical, but that doesn't mean it is simply philosophical. This was the problem that Jacques Maritain tried to address by developing what he thought of as a Thomistic aesthetics in art and scholasticism. So Maritain comes out on the other end of this reflection by suggesting two things. One is that aesthetic experience, he was thinking especially of the visual arts, though not only of that, that aesthetic experience, the experience the artist provides for us, is itself a kind of undisciplined cognition. The artist is an undisciplined contemplator, not nearly as high as a philosophical contemplator, and certainly not as high as a mystic but in the same family, kind of the weak little brother of the philosopher. Now, you would have thought, Maritain's not going to be very popular with artists after he says that, but that's not true, because artists weren't worried about the subordination of artistic cognition that Maritain was defending, because they were so exhilarated by the other aspect of it which is that the artist is autonomous. That's what they embraced. Maritain gave artists, Catholic artists, the message, 
let your imagination do its work. And what they heard was not exactly what Maritanoi said, because you can see as he writes later, he's kind of trying to take some of it back. What they heard was, the artistic imagination is free of the constraint of the teaching authority of the church. And in particular, it's free of moral constraints. So that vulgar censors, secular or clerical, don't understand the mode of cognition of the artist. The mode of cognition of the artist must be allowed to operate in the work of art, even if there are quite unseemly things that show up in that art. Now, Maritan does end up uh, vacillating on this question. He does make it sound like the artist's cognition can suffer from a kind of impurity that, in fact, uh, the church as an official teacher of faith and morals might need to correct, to control. Uh, this would be a long story about Maritan. But I want to mention it because of Maritan's obvious greatness as a Thomist, as somebody trying to think through in Thomist and indeed Aristotelian terms what the accomplishment of art is, to make it something cognitive but not to reduce that cognitive satisfaction to the satisfactions of philosophical penetration. But it's not surprising that what artists liked was the notion that artists have a kind of autonomy, a kind of integrity in their own work. Uh, I'll just mention here, I believe that uh, J.R. Tolkien had read art and scholasticism with some attention, although we have no documentary evidence of that. But in his own statement of artistic freedom in On Fairy Stories, Tolkien has a very striking passage where he talks about the right of the artist to the work of the imagination, even though, as he says, the imagination is likely never to be fully wholesome in fallen man, because the imagination, as he says, is stained with our stain, with the stain of the fall. So Tolkien much more boldly than Maritan embraces the stained imagination as the only imagination we have. And if we're to be allowed works of the imagination, we have to accept the moral risk, the moral hazard, not to say the near occasion of sin that the works of the imagination will produce. This radicalization of Maritan by Tolkien is a topic of its own that I think deserves a lot more work by Catholic thinkers than it seems to have received. But I'll leave further discussion of that to another day in Rome. So I want to think about what the cognitive satisfaction of poetry is supposed to be, particularly of tragic poetry that presents us an exemplar an exemplar that elevates and intensifies our own experience of our powers, our powers that involve morality, but they can't be fully moralized. So let me go quickly through some of these famous passages and just say something about them. So number two on your handout, 
The most important part of a tragedy is how the things enacted are put together. This is the famous privileging of plot over music and spectacle by Aristotle. For tragedy is imitation not of human beings but of actions and of a way of life. Happiness and unhappiness come about in action, and the end is some sort of action, not some quality. For people of a certain quality, because of their character traits, but happy or the opposite because of their actions. So this famous focus of Aristotle on action, on praxis, is what's central to the significance of a human life. There's a lot one could wonder about here, but at least Aristotle's notion that plot is primary in aesthetic experience is fully consistent with the way he looks at human beings in general and the way he thinks of eudaimonia, that is, of human happiness or human success, as located in praxis, in significant action. In the Nicomachean Ethics, this is uh, uh, three and four, uh, or passage three on your handout. Uh, Aristotle makes this point in a very striking way that brings it close to the experience of tragedy. It's possible, says Aristotle, for a state of virtue to be present without accomplishing any good, as with one sleeping or otherwise unconscious. But this isn't possible when the state is activated, when it's in a state of being at work of energeia. For then one will be performing action, praxis. The movement between energeia and praxis is a very important part of Aristotle's rhetoric in the Nicomachean Ethics. It's establishing that movement between praxis, which is not a technical word, to Aristotle's technical philosophical vocabulary of energeia. There's a lot that's at stake in establishing that philosophical vocabulary to talk about the significance of praxis. Again, I'll leave that aside for right now. But look at his example of this. At the Olympic Games, it is not the most beautiful or strongest who are crowned but those who compete, for they are the ones who win. What are we fans of? I hate when they show on the Olympics, they have human interest stories about the athletes. I couldn't care less. I want to see them as athletes. That's why I watch the Olympics. I don't really care about their grandma coming. Right? Now, there's a way of trying to tell an athlete's story so that you don't just focus on the athletic excellence, but you, so to speak, want to color the athletic excellence with a more rounded picture of their person. I think this is almost always a failure in the actual construction of the storytelling about Olympic athletes, at least on American television, because the center of significance of an Olympic athlete's life is competing in the Olympic Games. 
and the power and talent that allows that. Power and talent not separable from a number of pretty powerful moral virtues, but also not reducible to it. We don't give the gold medal to the nicest javelin thrower, at least not yet. <laughs> Passages like this show that megalopsuchia, the big life force that is the highest expression of the eudaimon life, of the successful happy life, it can't be fully moralized. These categories to us look like they're aesthetic. Now, the divide between the moral and the aesthetic that is that pops out of our mouths so thoughtlessly is itself, it seems to me, a, a hopeless invention. But you can see how naturally we read this out of Aristotle. It's not a good idea to read it out because it's too central to what he does. Jump ahead on your handout a little bit to passage number eight. <clears throat> Megalopsychia. Megalopsychia. That sounds like a mental disease. Yes? <laughs> Megalopsychia. Having a big life force requires magnitude, just as physical beauty requires a body with magnitude. And here, this is a trigger warning for any small people in the audience. <laughs> small people can be elegant and well-proportioned, but not beautiful. Because a part of beauty, not the only part, but a part of beauty is magnitude. Or, as I would prefer to say, power. That is a part of what beauty is. It's a part of beauty because it's a part of what draws us, what holds us there. If you are able to fully moralize your experience of what holds your attention, I do not congratulate you. I, it seems like a bad place to be to me. Uh, at least I'd have to say it doesn't seem true of most human beings. Why are there so many movies about criminals? Because criminals allow us to focus on power unmoralized. And people watch them. They watch them episode after episode after episode for years at a time when they watch The Sopranos or they watch Breaking Bad. The detective shows that are most popular always have detectives who are morally compromised because we'd like to see their power exercised when it is isolated from easiness, from the best of circumstances. That doesn't necessarily mean, though there's a moral hazard verging toward an occasion of sin, that doesn't necessarily mean that we find exemplary for ourselves their criminality. 
but it does mean that their criminality isolates something that allows us to see resources within ourselves that are more difficult to see in just stories about people who are always good. Aristotle sees this about tragedy. It's obvious in the poetics, but he also sees it in the ethics. He sees it there too. Passage 9 is one of my favorite passages in Aristotle about these questions. <clears throat> Here he's talking about uh, not megalotsukia, but about magnificence, about the great virtue that's associated with uh, money. The same virtue does not belong to a possession, uh, something you merely achieve, and to an active accomplishment. With a possession, what is most valued is what is worth most, such as gold. But with an active accomplishment, what is most valued is what is great and beautiful. Something of this sort, he says, is wonderful to contemplate. As what displays megaloprepeia is wonderful. And so the virtue of an active accomplishment of megaloprepia consists in magnitude. An example of this would be two people who put on parties. One person puts on parties that are nice to go to. They're a possession. The other person spends the same amount of money on parties. It's not that they spend more, but this person's parties are an event. There's a difference between the tidy elegance of the small man's parties and the big events of the big man's parties of the mentally deranged megalopsukos parties. And that, that difference in magnitude is a difference in beauty, but it is a difference in moral accomplishment if you're going to call the Nicomachean Ethics a book about morality. The world would be a more interesting one if people thought of the Nicomachean Ethics as also a central work in aesthetics. So, here we hit the nail on the head of wonder and of its contemplation. But surely part of the difference between going to the nice, elegant party and going to the event, it's nice to be invited to the nice, elegant party, but it's more important to be invited to the event. Surely part of that difference is when we're at the event, we experience some of the elevation, some of the intensification, some of the magnitude staged by the magnificent person. It's not just the host, it's everybody who participates in the host, to use a more Eucharistic language.
We're not just fans of virtue, we're also fans of power. One way power shows itself is through our, our enjoyment of criminality, of the outlaw. But the one that Aristotle focuses on is our enjoyment of suffering. I take it you all enjoy other people's suffering. As Aristotle says, this is number five, reversal and recognition are two parts of story. That's a translation of his word muthos, which Aristotle stole from the gods and applied only to plots about humans. Reversal and recognition are two parts of story and suffering is a third. Suffering is an action destructive or painful such as deaths that are shown and tortures and woundings and all such wonderful things. I didn't say wonderful, but you get the idea. Right? Suffering holds you to the tragedy. It holds your attention and it is a part of your cognitive working out of what Oedipus means. It's part of your being able to say, I understand Oedipus. Not just reversals and recognitions, but suffering too. That's part of the intensity. One thinks about all of the long, centuries-long debates about religious art and about the presentation of suffering therein. All those St. Sebastians full of arrows did they lift your heart and mind? Did they make you understand, I too could be a martyr? Or, as sometimes happens, did it just become homoeroticized? So you thought, that is one good-looking young man. But that's exactly the history of St. Sebastian's. There is no safety in beauty. Because the exhilaration of beauty while it may elevate us to nobility, is constantly part of a stained imagination. You can imagine people who avoid religious art, even people who destroy it, because they find the moral hazard to always be more of an occasion of sin than it is an opportunity to raise the heart and mind to spiritual things. Aristotle's no iconoclast, but some Aristotelians might be, exactly because they understand the inseparability of power to the kind of aesthetic impact, and therefore the kind of cognitive participation that Aristotle sees in tragedy. Aristotle develops this idea about how we enter into the exemplarity of the tragic hero with some language that seems to me very pregnant but never to quite deliver. Look at six. Uh, here I'm just quoting a few of the stock phrases out of Aristotle. At the level of character, the tragic protagonist must be sufficiently like us to elicit pity and fear for his actual or threatened suffering. So that the mere sufferings of a god 
doesn't provoke in us a tragic response. Uh, it'd be interesting to think about Prometheus bound in this regard, but of course Prometheus is the most philanthropic and therefore the most humanized of all the Greek gods. So it's a very interesting test case for thinking about some of these questions. You have to be like us to elicit pity because you have to be able to have that shuddering recognition, which is a cognition, it could happen to me. But they have to be, the tragic protagonist has to be better than us because then it elevates us. If, you know, I, if you just wrote a tragedy about Father Kevin, I mean, there'd be a little elevation for most of us there, but it's, he's no Oedipus. <laughs> Thank God, I'm saying, right? I, I'm just as happy. But stories about any of us that don't idealize us and make us heroes, they, they can elicit pity but they're not going to elicit the kind of elevation. In fact, the worry is, and this was Nietzsche's worry, insofar as they elicit pity, they make us think of the people with, who are suffering as less than us, that they're diminished, not elevated by their suffering. When we watch a great athlete fighting through difficulties to triumph, or for that matter, to fail nobly, we're elevated. When we watch an everyday weekend warrior playing in a pickup game of soccer or basketball, tripping over himself and failing, we might well smile ruthfully and think, yeah, I'm like that too. But your aspiration isn't likely to rise. Aristotle wants tragedy to get your aspiration to rise. Now, as I say, Father Kevin does make my aspiration rise, but not as much as Oedipus does. Though you'll notice my eyes are intact, so there's only so much I'm going to take on from Oedipus. But there's an issue there for Aristotle. The problem is, how do you stay like us and be better than us. It's like you need Jacques Derrida. Where is he when you've got a contradiction that you've got to hold on to? Right? How are you going to interpret this so it makes sense? Well, Aristotle is struggling here. He's not succeeding. He doesn't find a language. Uh, look at number 10. When many things of great magnitude turn out badly in a life, Aristotle says, this is from his second great aesthetic work, the Nicomachean Ethics, happiness is crushed and ruined since they bring pain and impede many actions. In these very circumstances, though, he goes on to say, does beauty shine forth when someone bears with good temper many misfortunes of great magnitude? not out of insensibility to the pain, but by being noble and displaying megalopsuchia, 
an extraordinary deployment of that notion of a great life force. The person truly good and of sound judgment bears misfortunes with good appearance. Good appearance, wow. And always acts as beautifully as possible given the circumstances. Think of sports fantasies. When you're engaged in the Walter Mitty side of your mind in a sports fantasy, you don't generally fantasize to being an athlete so dominant that you win easily and always. You fantasize to great comebacks. Uh, do you fantasize that you win the World Cup five times in a row? No, you win it once, then there are two terrible heartbreaks, and then in the waning days of your mid-30s, Once again, you bring the cup to your country. That's the structure of sports fantasy. Many athletes are actually, they're, they're not as good when they're 35 as they were when they were 25, but they're more loved. Because watching them suffer attaches you to them more. You like their suffering. Well, maybe that's not the right way to describe it. But you understand their excellence better when you see their struggles. But not if they struggle too much, because the old athlete who doesn't win anymore is now just pathetic. And maybe your, uh, maybe your pity will seem to you like a nice virtuous response to the pathetic aging athlete who's broken down now. But you know what? The aging athlete doesn't see it that way. He sees it as condescending. You're going down to him. You're not coming up to him. Tragedy makes us come up. The suffering makes us go up. The cross is always above us. That's the way Aristotle understood the exemplary tragic hero. Let me end just by pointing to uh, number 12 here. Near the beginning of his discussion, Aristotle says, the reason people enjoy seeing images is that by contemplating them, it happens that they learn something and figure it out of the sort, so this one is that one. So that's what Oedipus really is. It's a cognitive enjoyment that takes place through an imitative cognition, as I would want to say, not through a contemplative cognition. The tragic hero is an exemplar. He's not just an example. He's not an example that we plug into a theory to show what the theory says. He's an, example, an exemplar that shows us what we are. So that tragedy participates in all of the dubious mysteries of self-knowledge, which never is just having a theory in which we're just one more example. Self-knowledge seems to require 
some sort of discourse that makes us feel something as exemplary that we live up to, not simply that describes us. Let me make one closing remark about Wagner. Aristotle eliminates music from the heart of tragedy. In this respect, he's essentially different from the Plato of the third book of the Republic, for whom the way that music gets into your soul is the central issue about tragedy. Aristotle saves tragedy by plucking its heart out. He makes tragedy safe for exemplarity without the perturbations and disturbances of what music does to us. Wagner is the man who reintegrated music and plot at the highest aesthetic level so that the music tells the story as much as the plot, so that the plot becomes musical. But all the cracks about how, yeah, I, I go to watch a Wagner opera, but I buy the cheapest seats because I don't even want to see what they're doing. I just listen to the music. That's really not true. The extraordinary thing about Wagner is he found a way to integrate plot and music into one thing, one cognitive satisfaction, one impact. A cognitive satisfaction that no doubt has many, many moral hazards and more than a few occasions of sin. But yet it's a cognitive achievement to appreciate a Wagner opera. And it's the integration of plot with music into one thing that Wagner called music drama. My model for this is what I would call the Wagner vector. The plot gives direction, but the music gives amplitude, gives magnitude, gives power. And just as in a vector, the direction and the magnitude make one thing. You, you can analytically separate them, but in a vector, that's one thing. So too in Wagner, music and plot have been reintegrated and have overcome the extraordinary power of Aristotle's poetics in the development of opera from its very beginnings around 1600. Nietzsche then, in The Birth of Tragedy, who's simply imitating Wagner's ideas there, his is that moment when the modern world starts to overcome Aristotle's removal of music from the exemplary elevation and intensification that drama gives us. For good or for ill, we're no longer living in an Aristotelian age after Wagner. We're living in Nietzsche's age, but Nietzsche's aesthetics is simply Plato's aesthetics written by a bad man. The book that governs us now is no longer the poetics, it's the symposium, and I leave that for another visit to Rome.